Welcome to the Catching Health Podcast. I'm Diane Atwood, your own personal health reporter. Do you find it easy to make friends? Do you have a lot of friends? A best friend? Research shows that solid friendships help us live longer, happier lives. And according to the National Inclusion Project, friendship is also the best way to help children feel included and successful. And yet many children, especially children with disabilities, have great difficulty making friends. Aaron Hall is here to explain how we adults can help children build friendships. He's the director of programs at the National Inclusion Project. Welcome, Aaron. Thank you very much, Diane. Can you start by telling us a little bit about the National Inclusion Project? Absolutely. Um, we are an organization that has been around since 2003. Uh, we were co-founded by uh, Diane Bubel. Uh, she is a mom of two children, one uh, without a disability and one with a disability. And she experienced firsthand as a parent how uh, hard it was for her son, Mike, who had autism, to uh, be included in programs, to make friends. And uh, she uh, f felt it. She, it was very personal to her. Um, our other co-founder is uh, entertainer Clay Aiken. Um, and before American Idol and, and all the other things that he's been able to do in his career happened, uh, he was on track to be a special education teacher in the state of North Carolina after a long career with uh, the YMCA. And he too, uh, from the side of uh, program uh, access saw that kids with disabilities really did were not included very well, um, if at all. Um, and so we were founded in 2003 with the idea that we were going to empower uh, and equip uh, recreational programs uh, on how to include ch children with disabilities into their summer camps and after schools um, and other programs throughout uh, the uh, the country. Uh, we've expanded beyond just the typical summer camp and after school program now into museums and zoos and uh, really any uh, any program that serves uh, children with disabilities. All right. So I read that one of the things that you all discovered along the way was that many organizations were already doing inclusion projects and they were doing them well, but that they weren't necessarily connected to one another. Is that one of the things the project has been able to accomplish and, and how have you done it? Yeah, that's that really is is it. You know, it's it's interesting because we've worked with a multitude of programs that have decades of experience with inclusion, um, and yet we're in 2017 still talking about inclusion as if it's this revolutionary idea. And what we uh, this what we found was is that those people, although they were doing inclusion, they were doing it in um, pockets and without the means or maybe the intention of sharing the information that they had on their trial and error process. Um, and uh, I'm a firm believer that, you know, we hear the phrase experience is the best teacher, but I, I don't think that's all, all the way true because I think a lot of times other people's experience is a way better teacher um, because we can learn from there, uh, learn from other people's mistakes and I have to make the same mistakes over and over again that, that they've already made. Um, and so what we've done is we've created opportunities like our annual Power of Play conference. Uh, we have uh, network, uh, we have uh, things online that people can network. Uh, we do a good job of if someone asks a question, we don't necessarily answer it directly. Sometimes we connect them with another program that we know knows the answer. And that way, 
programs can get the sense that they're not in it by themselves. I think that's really important that this is a bigger movement that they're a part of. And uh, we can learn and accelerate the process of uh, people being on the same page as far as what good, successful inclusion looks like. So I have observed that children left to their own devices tend to be quite inclusive, and it's adults who sometimes get in the way. Am I correct? That that would uh, I think that would be uh, an, an accurate statement. Um, uh, I think though uh, that one of the problems and one of the reasons why adults have to be a part of it is that especially in this day and age where kids aren't just riding their bikes around their neighborhoods anymore as much as they used to, certainly as much as uh, I did when I was a kid, um, that adults are the ones that are in creating the scenarios where kids can come together and be a part. And a lot of times those situations are not created with a child with a disability in mind and they end up not being in those scenarios where that natural just childlike wonder being friends no matter what can happen. So I wonder what it is that makes some adults even parents and teachers assume and I assume that that's what they're doing that mm -hmm. a child with a disability can't do something. Is it being over overprotective, being afraid, not understanding or that it just might take a little too much effort? Um, I think it's probably a little bit of all of that. Uh, I think that um, effort is a big thing. Uh, it, 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 you know, a, a lot of people, it's not a matter of them not uh, wanting to be intentional. It's just that they don't necessarily know how to be intentional. Um, and it does take that kind of extra uh, step of studying, asking the right questions, um, you know, in order to set up that environment. I also think, too, we just, we, we as we grow, uh, we kind of have this uh, different is something to be scared of. Um, and uh, we we tend to put disability into a or a disability or diagnosis into into this really interesting bucket that becomes something that we have to kind of keep at arm's length. Whereas for, for most children with disabilities, it's really not about their diagnosis. It's more about kind of the symptoms that come out of that 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 diagnosis. You know, I, I talk to people all the time and say, tell me what autism is. And very few people can you know, give a good concrete example of or or definition of what autism is, and you know, there there's it runs the spectrum. You know, and I have a I have a colleague that likes to say, if you know one child with autism, you know one child with autism, um, and that's <laughs> that's all you know. And so um, it's more a matter of getting to know that child, which I think if we put it in those terms and we begin to talk to talk about it like that, that's where it actually becomes simpler for people because. Who doesn't have a friend that they have to, quote unquote, accommodate for based on their personality, based on their desires, based on bad days, good days, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and I would think that sometimes even the child might not realize what he or she is capable of doing if they haven't ever even been, been given the chance. Absolutely. Absolutely. We, we have uh, stories uh, left and right of children who um, see and... Um, uh, ch ch children who have um, never been around a child with a disability who end up having incredible relationships with children with disabilities. We have uh, children with disabilities who've never gotten the opportunity to 
do certain activities. And um, because they're around other children uh, who are doing those activities that are now their friends, they want to participate and they jump in uh, really almost without thinking about it, you know, that, that they, it, it almost becomes because people are intentional on the front end, it almost becomes organic on the back end of how they interact with each other. And when kids are excluded from things because they're disabled, what kind of an impact might that have on that child? Well, I mean, I, I look at just, I think making it very personal. I look at my life and how enriched I am by the friends that I have and how my me as a person i have uh become who i am because of who i associate with i think you know didn't everyone have a grandmother that said you are who you associate with (laughs) and i think that if you are um isolated out of that um you miss out on that incredibly enriching part of you know most people's experiences and we all have a a desire to belong now it may look different some people want to belong in a very close-knit group of individuals some people want to belong to you know a group of a thousand people you know and have have tons and tons of friends Um, but again that's not disability specific that's personality and temperament specific and um, you know children with disabilities um, are no different that there is a desire to connect, even if they don't necessarily know how, even if sometimes some, some of the symptoms from their disabilities um, make it a little harder to connect, there still is a desire to connect and still is a desire to belong to something beyond just themselves um, and really beyond just their families, um, you know, beyond just their immediate uh, families within their home. And hearing you talk, I, I think that everybody can be enriched, not just the child with the disability. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that anytime we expand um, our, our belief, anytime we can, we can kind of kill the myth that different is ultimately wrong or something to be scared of, um, I think that becomes uh, a, a something we can carry with us into every scenario we walk into in the future. And if you've got adults that are having trouble being inclusive, if their children are learning say in school, how to be inclusive, they can teach their parents something as well. Oh, absolutely. And it's interesting because um, I don't know that I have an example specifically of uh, kids talking to their parents, but we had a scenario in a summer camp one year where a child had been included in summer camp the entire summer. And then when the children went back to school, um, that child was then in an isolated classroom. And one of the children that had been with him during the entire summer actually went to his teacher and said, I don't understand. All summer he was with us, but now he can't be in our classroom. I don't understand. Um, and it was highly challenging for the teacher um, and, and the entire system to, to, to understand that you know these children didn't understand because he had been perfectly okay in summer camp why wouldn't he be okay? Why, why couldn't their friend be with them in their classroom too? So was there a change? There was not a change at that point because uh, unfortunately, especially with schools, there's uh, quite a bit of red tape to cut through in scenarios like that. Um, so I wish there was a happier end of that story, but um, just the fact that the children were recognizing that, that they were seeing that there could be overlap. They didn't necessarily understand why there couldn't be overlap in those scenarios leads to me to believe that those same children 
if their parents are having struggles, could go home and say, yeah, but this is what we're doing at camp or this is what we're doing in school if they happen to be in an inclusive setting in school. And what a lesson for the kid, too, to have his friend or friends speak up on his behalf. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's talk about the science of friendship. First of all, you believe that there is a science to making friends, right? We do. We do. We do. And and when we say that, what we really are talking about is kind of a scientific method, if you will, and an intentional method of helping kids make friends and be connected and and um, and grow together. Um, you know, in in a lot of ways, I, I, I use the analogy of a garden. Uh, you know, you have to first of all till the soil and prepare uh, prior to children being in a scenario uh, so that the soil is good when they get there. Um, and uh, for in a lot of ways for adults, it's not a matter of making kids become friends or, or, or being a part of that. that that's called meddling. Um, that's not called making friends, um, but giving the opportunity for children um, to connect, giving the children opportunity to uh, create that connection, which ultimately is what will lead to the building of a friendship. That initial connection is really important. And for 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 me, I you know I've never known uh, a farmer to grab a packet of seeds, rip it open, and just kind of throw it in the in the air and say, "Hope it works." <laughs> it's very it's very intentional. They put them in rows. They plant them. Um, they tend to them, but they also leave them to grow once they're planted. Uh, you know, they don't bring up, you know, pull a stool out of the farm shed and sit down and stare at the seeds and wait for them to grow, you know. And so in the same way, uh, in a lot of ways, that's very similar to the process of helping children connect and leading them to potentially becoming friends. Well, I know you've, there's a series of simple steps. I'd like to go through some of the steps. I'll got them written out here in front of me okay. so um and let you speak to each one of them okay number one says to check your own attitude first yes absolutely absolutely i think if you're not open to uh the idea of children with and without disabilities becoming friends it's going to be very hard for you to create healthy uh in, in a healthy environment for for that those kind of things to happen. Again, for me, that's the tilling the soil. That's the preparing before, you know, there's actually kids in front of you um, and just believing. And and we at the National Inclusion Project really pride ourselves on championing, championing three beliefs um, that all children can make a friend, all children can participate, and all children can be successful. And that goes into all of that, I, that whole attitude of um, creating scenarios for kids to connect. Um, and, and for me, the, when speaking specifically to the all children um, uh, can make a friend, uh, you know, I, I challenge people sometimes and say, do you, do you really believe that there is a child out there that is destined to be miserable and lonely? And if you don't, the good news is, is that you already believe that every kid can make a friend. Because if they're not destined to be miserable and lonely, then they have the ability to make a friend. Who would believe that any child was destined to be miserable and lonely? Right. I've not found one. <laughs> I've not found anyone. So. Okay. Number two, you've already spoken a bit to this, but know the kid, not the diagnosis. Yes, absolutely. Um, every child is different. Every child has their own, uh, you know, desires and likes and dislikes. And, um, you know, and, and I think respecting that is good. I think knowing, knowing your, knowing the kids that you're around is so important because you're going to know how to connect kids better if you know them yourself. 
Okay. Three, be open to questions and comments. Yes. <laughs> kids, kids don't have a filter. Kids will say anything and everything. They'll ask every question. And um, typically questions, especially about differences, um, come from, I, you know, I tend to, they, they tend, they tend to come from three places. One, uh, curiosity, uh, two, fear, um, three, being mean. You know, there there is an element of that, that that we have to address, and and you know, there's there's um, you know, we we don't live in a Pollyanna world um, where everything everybody is just happy and we're all excited about connecting with each other. Um, however, as the adult in the scenario, um, especially in a summer camp or after school setting where um, you know it is very it's a very intense setting. You know, it's it's a quick day or it's a long day. It's hot. You're moving between many activities. Uh, you're trying to make sure every kid stays safe and has a good time and is emotionally healthy and et cetera, and, you know, and getting fed and everything else. So when a child asks a question, when a particular, you know, a camper asks a question, um, a lot of times curiosity, fear and meanness can all sound the same. And a lot of times we tend to default to children being mean. Um, we're, we're so, I think, primed to handle those kind of scenarios that we tend to jump into, in, into this child is being mean and we shut things down. And the statement that I like to use is that every unanswered question that a child has about another child is a building block between in a wall between those two children. Um, and if you don't have an environment where you, your kids are open to, you know, have the freedom to ask questions or make comments and they're not going to get slammed for it, um, then they still have questions. They just all go unanswered because they never ask them. And that wall gets built up between those two kids. And uh, I certainly don't want to be the one that contributes to that. And so as hard as it is to be open it's really vital to make sure that happens. You know, we we helped a third grade class publish a book one time called Our Friend Michaela. And Michaela, um, uh, Michaela had some very severe disabilities. And in the beginning of the book, one of the children, it's written and illustrated by the children. And one of the children says, one of us even thought it was contagious, but we found out it wasn't. Wow. And so important that they had the opportunity to ask that question and not get criticized for asking that question because if, he or she thought Michaela was contagious, she would have she would have every right to avoid Michaela for the entire year. Um, because what do you do when you know someone's contagious? You avoid them. You, you don't want to catch what they have. And so because but there because there was an open environment to ask, that was solved and they were able to move on you know, very, very quickly and they didn't they didn't even have to think twice about it again. Um, and so one of the things that I, I like to train people to do in, in that scenario is Number one, take a breath. When someone asks you a question, take a breath. It allows you to think a little better. And then the first response that we like to train people on is ask back a question, and that is, what do you mean? So when someone says something, why does she make that noise? Why do we have to wait for her? You know, why, why do we wait, have to wait for him at every activity, etc.? Take a breath. What do you mean? And probably while they're answering that question, take another breath. And then you'll be able to answer that question in a way that will keep the environment open. Good advice. I was going to ask you for some tips, so thank you. Okay. So you remind me of um, an incident. I was covering a story in a third grade class, and it was um, a program that was meant to be inclusive. And um, 
as part of it, there was some game playing and some interaction between individual kids and groups of kids. And there was one little girl who was rather disruptive and had to be disciplined a few times. And you could see that she was getting on a couple of other students' nerves. Mm-hmm. Um, so they wrap things up with a story. The leader read a story about a little girl with autism. And right in the middle of it, this little girl who had been disrupted jumped up and started clapping her hands. And she said, that's me, that's me. I have (laughs) autism. And that broke the ice because the kids in her class did not know that she had autism. They thought that she just was kind of a disruptive kid. And I, I even heard one little girl go up to her afterwards and say, I didn't know you had autism. And right. the little girl said, yes, yes, I do. It was pretty miraculous, I thought. Yeah, absolutely. I was also a little surprised that there'd never been a discussion about it. it right. Should I have been surprised? Um, no, I, well, I, again, it's just a matter of sometimes I think people tend to not be intentional <laughs> or as intentional as they should be. Um, and, and, um, especially, uh, you know, and, and I think a lot of times it's, it, there is a, a fear of how do you introduce a child with a disability? Like we don't want to stigmatize the child, you know, other things. And it's funny because in scenarios like that, where the child wasn't stigmatized by that at all. In fact, she was happy that someone was talking about her. Right. And so it is a fine line that you have to walk and, and have to be careful doing. But, um, you know, I think that's one of the reasons why. Well, we don't want to spotlight, but then it's being spotlighted anyway without there being any knowledge of what's actually going on, and it's hard for people to relate. All right, let's go on to number four. Celebrate both similarities and differences. So is there a way that we can do that easily? Yeah, well, for me, um, it, we, we see differences easily. I mean, it's very interesting. You, know, you, you look at someone and go, they're a different gender than me, or they have a different hair color than me, or they wear different clothes than I do, or they're a different skin color. It's very easy to notice differences. Um, a lot of times similarities you can also notice, and, and that's why when you walk into a place and if they're not intentional about connecting, um, people sitting around tables end up looking a lot like each other, <laughs> you know, because that's who we gravitate towards, who we see. And so um, we, um, we teach certain activities that um, uh, programs can use. Uh, to help kids identify similarities. In fact, we have a game that we call similarities where they partner up with a a partner and they find four similarities they have, but they can't be something they can see. It can't be something they can see. Um, And then once they have that, they take those two partners, partner with two other partners and make a group of four and they find two things amongst themselves and then eight. Then we make a group of eight and find one thing amongst themselves. And, you know, of course, what's interesting is, is that a lot of differences come out, too, in that scenario. So they get a chance to get to know each other in general. But the I think back on all the friends that I have and all of them started with some similarity, even if it was just we happen to be in the same dorm room during the same semester at the same time. That was our only similarity. But it led to a connection that allowed for us to build a bridge. And, you know, so one of the things that, that we, we talk about is differences 
with differences without connection keep us apart. Differences with connection make things interesting. And for us, it's also not about ignoring the differences, but when the differences are, are, are spotlighted in the context of connection, it's typically something that's not weird anymore. It's cool. It's unique. It's interesting. The wording of the description of those differences changes. And again, a, a, another example, this was actually with adults. I was in a training session. I did the similarities activity. And then what I had them do is in, in, in the group of eight, I had them do another a follow-up activity where they said, my name is fill in the blank and I'm special because, and they gave a unique trait about themselves. And so um, there was one group in particular, none of these ladies knew each other. And it was a preschool conference that I was doing. And um, this girl stood up and said, my name is Jessica and I can do this. And she turned around and basically unhinged her shoulder blades. So they looked like pterodactyl wings were getting ready to pop out of her back. And from a distance, it looked horrible. It looked really disgusting. But I noticed that the ladies in the circle all applauded and went nuts. They said, this is great. So cool. That's amazing. So forth and so on. And none of these people knew each other except for the fact that between the eight of them, they had one similarity. But that's all it took to make that one thing that would some of those people would have thought Jessica was weird. And now she's cool. Um, and so that's where it's that's why the, the similarities and differences. It starts with help being intentional about showing kids they have similarities with each other. And then you can spotlight those differences in a way that make it something that that, that it, it, it builds into the relationship. And for me, listening to this story, you, you need to make sure you're in a safe environment. That's correct. That's correct. And again, that, that safe environment is um, really um, created by that very first thing you talked about. And that is, your own attitude about how this is going to work. Comes full circle. So the final step that I have on my list is let kids be kids. You've, you've spoken about that and mm -hmm. sort of the bottom line. Yep. And, and so I think sometimes we get so involved with play with purpose that we forget sometimes play for play is purposeful. And I think once you've created that safe environment, you've created connections. Now you just have to let kids play have fun, be, be together. It, again, it doesn't mean you're not tending to those relationships. Things can still go awry. You know, feelings can still get hurt and you have to make sure you, you step in. Um, you know, I have, I have four kids of my own three who are school age and, you know, my, my two girls can play with each other really well. And then we start seeing some warning signs and my wife is very good at going check engine light, check engine light. And, you know, that's her, her little verbal cue for them to go, Cool. take a breath. I like this person that's sitting across the table from me. I just need to take a breath. And, you know, but just let them play and be part of what, um, you know, what's going on in, um, you know, what, what's going, you know, take advantage of the friendship they're starting to develop and have fun. So the answer is probably obvious, but how do you know when what you're doing is successful? Well, if you are running a program and you have children in your program, and kids are making friends. The the simplest way that I know how to put it, and this is uh, something that comes from a former board member of ours who's done a lot of research on uh, social inclusion. Um, and it's very simple. Our children, our children from your program, with our children with disabilities from your program, being invited to birthday parties and play dates outside of your program. 
And when that's happening, the level of relationship they're reaching within your program is uh, real. And it's not just a relationship out of convenience of being in the same place at the same time. Um, and, and that's the simplest, that's the simplest way, that's the simplest gauge of what, um, if it's being successful. I think within the program, um, if you are seeing better participation, if you are seeing less behavior issues, I think those are good gauges too, because typically kids that are connected participate more and give you less behavior issues because they have something to lose. Um, and so those are the gauges within the program. But if you're talking about true, real friendship, uh, to re true, real friendship, then that's the, that's going to be the gauge if things are happening outside of the bounds of your program. Okay. So there are games, icebreakers, more tips on the inclusion project website. Can I mean, yes. And we're, and, and we're available to answer any questions through email or phone calls. Um, we are happy to connect people and, and, uh, be our own connecting force, if you will. Um, and, uh, help, people become friends all over the country uh, to make this thing called inclusion happen in a big way. Wonderful. So is there anything I didn't ask you that you wish I had? I think you covered it. Um, that That's pretty much what we, the, the topic, I mean, the, the different bullet points we talked about are pretty much what we train programs on. And uh, we, we, we uh, you know, we have seen over the past few years, especially that people have really gravitated to this idea of friendship. Um, I think, you know, if, if there was one question, it might be why, like why the focus on friendship, why the focus on connection. Um, and it really goes back to kind of what I just said. And that is we have found that when kids make friends and kids are connected, um, the entire experience gets better. So, um, yes, you want to have, uh, behavior techniques and, and your plan in place for what you're going to do when behavior uh, arises. But, Kids that, you know, the proactive strategy is helping kids be connected. Yes, you need to have fun activities and you need to have ways to keep kids engaged. But the proactive strategy for that is get kids connected with each other. Um, and a lot of those things happen, uh, again, in a, in a more natural way because you've been intentional on the front end for um, connecting. And it, with all of the parents that we have had an opportunity to talk to, get feedback from, et cetera, the number one thing that they say, um, especially children, uh, parents of children with disabilities, is, is my kid ever going to make a friend? Hmm. There's so many things that, you know, we have one parent in, in particular that I had a conversation with, and she told me ever since her son received a diagnosis of autism, she got a list of all these things that he was never going to do. You know, he's never going to do that. He's never going to go to summer camp never going to be in a regular classroom, never going to play on a sports team, et cetera. And she looked at the list and realized this was, this was a list of things that every other kid does to make friends. And her number one concern became, will my child ever make a friend? And because she was able to get him into an inclusive program that was very intentional about that, um, he warmed up to the, warmed up to the idea of relationships um, and kids warmed up to him. And there was one day in particular where he stayed with his uh, peer buddy uh, for everybody had a buddy on a field trip and he stayed with his buddy the entire field trip. And when we told her that she actually started crying because it was so real to her at that point that 
it was possible for him to make friends and the other kids wanted to be his friend. And, and, and that's why we do what we do. You know, I, I have a nephew, Miles, who has Down syndrome, and he's in high school now. And um, he is a very productive member of the theater group in the high school. Yeah. It was one of the most wonderful things that could happen to him. He's been in almost, every, I think, every production since he's been in high school. Everybody embraces him. Uh, he went to the, to the prom. Nice. Yeah, I mean, it sort of turned his life around, I think, because right. I, I know that the family worried about the same things that this mother worried about. Is he going to be able to make friends and be included in things? And he's been embraced in his community. That's fantastic. Yeah. That's fantastic. Well, thank you, Aaron, for spending this time with us. Appreciate Absolutely. it. No problem. And for more information about the Inclusion Project and the Science of Friendship, visit inclusionproject.org. I've been talking with Aaron Hall. He's the Director of Programs at the National Inclusion Project. And I'm Diane Atwood. You've been listening to the Catching Health Podcast. Thank you. If you have any comments or questions about today's episode or have a suggestion for a future topic, send me an email, diane at dianeatwood.com. You can connect with me on Twitter, at Catching Health, and Catching Health is also on Facebook. For more health reporting that makes a difference, visit catchinghealth.com.